Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault, because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Have you ever wondered where some of the phrases we use every day originally came from? Have you ever thought of a common phrase and wondered what its origin was? what it originally stood for, what it originally meant. One of the phrases that we might hear every once in a while is a skeleton in the closet. If someone has something to hide, we think of them as having a skeleton in his or her closet. If they have an embarrassing episode they don't want anyone to know about, or maybe even something bad they've done. Have you ever wondered where that phrase got its origin? There are different stories describing how that phrase began to be used, but they all have one thing in common. Sometime in the 19th century, that phrase was used because there was a man who was so upset with one of his rivals that he just became so angry, he went over and he took that man's life. And then he realized he didn't know what to do next. And so he literally hid the body in his cupboard. And it wasn't until his neighbors started getting suspicious and going over to his house and looking around that they found he literally did have a skeleton in his closet. He literally did have something in his closet he was trying to hide from everyone else. And ever since then, that phrase has been used. We hear it used today, especially when election season rolls around. It's happened already, hasn't it? There are candidates on both sides of the aisle that have stepped forward to decide to run for president. And once you decide to make that statement, you're a candidate for any office, it's open season. People are going to be looking through your past and trying to find things to bring out. And there will be hundreds of people between now and our next election who are just looking for those skeletons in the closet. Looking for those those events that happened in the past that you don't want anyone else to know about. And we might think that that's unique to our situation. We might think that in American politics, we're the only ones who have done that. But you know, when we read the Old Testament, we see that these rivals of Daniel were doing exactly the same thing. They were looking for skeletons in his closet. You see, Daniel was rising to a position of prominence. He was someone who wasn't a Babylonian by birth. He was an Israelite who had been sent in exile there. He was working for the king in the king's palace and he had distinguished himself so much that he was rising to a position of prominence. And so his rivals were trying to find some skeletons in his closet, trying to find something uh, about which they could accuse him. But what's interesting is we see here in verse 5, one of the most powerful verses, I think, in the book of Daniel. They come to the conclusion, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, they started digging for dirt on Daniel and realized 
There weren't any skeletons in his closet. They couldn't dig up any dirt on him. In fact, the only way they could find a, a, a complaint to have against him, a way they could accuse him, was if they found it in connection with the law of his God. Now that's powerful, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if every single one of us could live a life where people would say that about us? Where they could say, you know, the only thing I could find to say bad about him would have to do with the way he serves his God. I can't think of anything negative about her. The only way I could accuse her is if it had something to do with the example she sets in serving her Savior. Daniel had come to this point in Daniel chapter 6 with apparently no grounds of accusation except for his service to God. So this morning, I want us to focus on how we can follow Daniel's example. What can we do to avoid piling up the the skeletons in our closet? To avoid piling up all of these things that people could dig up and and think about and, and use against us as they consider our lives? You see, Peter, when he was writing the book, 1 Peter in chapter 3 and verse 16, would write to his readers saying that they should have such good behavior that anyone who slandered against them, anyone who had something to say negatively against them, would be ashamed. That's the kind of life as Christians we're called to live. Daniel's kind of life. A life that when people look at they can say, I can't think of anything negative to say about that person, except if it's connected with the God they serve. And so we have to realize that this journey began for Daniel long before he was put in a lion's den. Usually we think about the faith it took for Daniel to be in that lion's den, but did you know it was faith that got him into that lion's den? And so to understand how Daniel got to this point in Daniel chapter 6, we need to turn all the way back to the first chapter of the book. And so if you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. It's page 779 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there again, let me welcome you, especially if you're visiting with us. We're thrilled to have you here to be a part of our Bible study and worship time together. We do want to continue to remember those of us who are in El Salvador. Over the next two weeks, we will have teams there working and both meeting people's physical needs and also their spiritual needs. And you'll definitely want to check the announcements and look for the website that will keep us updated on what's taking place there. They'll have a a journal, a weblog there that will tell us what's happening. And that's a wonderful way for us to be connected and to be a part of this trip. So I'd encourage you to look at that and keep them in your prayers. When we go all the way back to Daniel chapter 1, we get an idea of the setting here. In the first few verses, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar has taken the Babylonian kingdom... And they have marched and they've, they've besieged Jerusalem. They've captured Judah. And so this powerful city to the Israelites has been taken over by the Babylonians. And what's interesting is in verse 2, we see that this is not an act that takes place because Nebuchadnezzar is such a wonderful king or because his army is so fierce. It takes place because God handed over his people to the Babylonians. This was a punishment for the Israelites' unfaithfulness. They were handed over. And so God is always in control here. It's not that the Babylonians have somehow become more powerful than God, although it seems to be what they think. It seems to be what they think because they make some major changes. They take some articles from the Lord's temple and they put them in their pagan temples. Now, this would be like adding insult to injury. This would be like saying, you know, our gods that we serve, our pagan gods, are more powerful than your God. So we're going to take some articles that that you've considered holy and set apart in your temple, and we're going to put them in our pagan temples. Not only that, but they started to take members of the Israelite royal family, and they were going to make them subject to the king. Verse 4 of chapter 1 tells us what kind of people Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. In verse 4, he was looking for young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, 
possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. See, Nebuchadnezzar was looking for members of the royal family that he could recruit and train to serve him. Now, if we think about it, this makes sense for Nebuchadnezzar. If I'm Nebuchadnezzar and I take over this this nation, and this nation is now subject to me, the last thing I want to do is let them practice their religion and maintain that sense of connectedness and that identity they have as the people of Israel. That's the last thing I want them to do. I want to assimilate them. I want to make them a part of my culture because if I allow them to stick together, they could easily get together and and lead a revolt against me. So I want to make them a part of my culture. And we see the ways that he does that uh, by taking their objects of worship and putting them in pagan temples, by taking their royal family and putting them in his palace where he could train them and he could keep an eye on them and use them for his purpose. We also see that he does something very significant to these four men that are mentioned here in verse 6. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, we're probably all familiar with Daniel. If I asked you to name the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you might have to think for a second. But if I asked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'd probably all immediately think of that story in the fiery furnace. For whatever reason, they're referred to more by the names they were given in captivity than by their original Hebrew names. But we see some name changes taking place. And before we pass over these name changes, we need to realize the importance of a name in the Old Testament. You see, when we decide to name children today, usually it's, it's because of a, of a name that we like in particular. Maybe it has a particular significance for us. Maybe it's a family name that's been handed down. Yet when we see in the Old Testament, when they start to name people, they have a much, a much bigger emphasis on what the names mean. The meaning of names is very important. So anytime I see a name change in the Old Testament, I need to look and see what those names mean. When Abram is changed to Abraham, there's a significance there. When Jacob is changed to Israel, there's a significance there. And there's a significance here in Daniel. As Daniel's name originally meant, God is my judge. And so you have this name that honors God as the ultimate judge. But they changed Daniel's name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect his life. Now, Bel was a pagan god. So Daniel's name is changed from a name that glorifies the one true God to a name that mentions the pagan God. And that was true for his friends as well. Hananiah, which meant the Lord has been gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means the command of Eku, which is another pagan God. That same pagan God is is seen in the name Meshach, because you have Mishael, whose name originally meant who is what God is, and that's changed to Meshach, which means who is what Eku is. Once again, you've got that change from the one true God to pagan God. And then with Azariah, which means the Lord is my helper, now you have that becoming Abednego, which means servant of Nego, another pagan God. And these changes are significant. it's, It's actually changing what the king wants their identity to be. They have served this one true God. Now he wants them to start serving the gods of their new country and their new culture. And it's in the midst of all this change that we see the first powerful thing that Daniel does. The first thing I need to remember, if I want to be like Daniel, if I want to keep skeletons out of my closet, I have got to make a decision. And Daniel makes that decision in verse 8. In verse 8, Daniel is reacting to the fact that these select men are going to receive food from the king's table. And he purposed in his heart 
that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now we need to stop and understand the importance of this decision Daniel's making. When we look through the Old Testament, we see that there were some strict dietary laws for those who wanted to serve God. Leviticus chapter 11 tells us all about the clean and the unclean foods. There were certain meats that were clean and certain meat that was unclean. Now, all of the meat that would have been served at the king's table would likely have been sacrificed to idols, number one, sacrificed to these pagan gods, part of a pagan worship ritual. And number two, it wouldn't have been prepared with the Jewish dietary laws in mind. And so there would have been some some clean foods in there with the unclean foods. And so what Daniel decides is he's not going to defile himself and he's not going to take any chances on eating meat that is unclean or meat that's been that's been offered to idols. He decides he wants to have a different diet altogether. In fact, in verse 16, it's eventually worked out to where he and his three friends can have vegetables and water while the rest of the young men in their situation have the food from the king's table. Now, it's not to say you had to be a vegetarian in order to please God, but it, the chance was, was zero that there would be any kind of unclean vegetables being served. And so Daniel makes a choice. I'm not even going to take a chance on this clean or unclean meat. I'm going to decide I'm going to eat only vegetables and drink only water. I'm not going to be a part of that. You see, Daniel made a decision. And it's important for us, if we're going to keep skeletons out of our closet, to make a decision. Did you notice that he has to make this decision in verse 8 before he can live that kind of life that gets us to Daniel 6 and verse 5? Before they can look and see there's no accusation they can have against him, he makes this decision all the way here in the first chapter. I'm going to have to make a decision in my life of, of who I'm going to serve and how I'm going to act before I can have the kind of life people look at and marvel the same way they marveled at Daniel's life. It's important for us to make decisions before we're faced with challenges. The time for me to decide whether or not I'm going to live a pure life is not when it's late at night and I'm surfing the internet or flipping through the channels and everyone else is asleep. That's not the time for me to decide what images I want to look at or what I want to be a part of or what thoughts I want to have running through my mind. That decision should be made beforehand. That decision should be made earlier on. The time for me to decide whether or not I'm going to take part in the same kind of dishonest activity my coworkers might is not when I'm faced with that decision. It's not when someone comes up to me and says, are you going to be a part of this? Are you going to do what we're doing? That decision should have been made far, far before that happened. That decision should have been made in advance. You see, that's what Daniel does for us. He makes a decision. And if you notice, he decides that he can only control himself. He was going to focus only on what he could control. Can you imagine what an overwhelming situation this would have been for Daniel? His entire culture has been bombarded by these Babylonians. It's been taken over. If you've ever moved somewhere into a different culture, you know what it's like to feel like you've lost your home. Well, Daniel literally had lost his home. They had taken over. Everything was being thrown out. He could have felt overwhelmed. He could have thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have my same name anymore. They won't call me Daniel. I don't have the same home anymore. I'm living in a different palace. My culture has been taken over. But you know, Daniel decided there was one thing he could control. He could control what he ate. He couldn't control whether or not Israel had been taken over by the Babylonians. He couldn't fight all the soldiers himself. He couldn't even control what other people wanted to call him, but he could control what he ate. And he decided to make a decision. 
And not only did he focus on what he could control, but he also lived up to his Hebrew name and not his Babylonian name. He, he lived a life as if God was his judge. And he didn't live a life as if his culture was his judge. His culture didn't determine his actions. And that's a powerful lesson for us today, isn't it? Because sometimes if I look at the news, it's overwhelming to see what's taking place in the world. It's overwhelming to see what's taking place in this country. And I can be so discouraged. How, is, how are we ever going to survive as a church? How are we ever going to reach people? But in the end, all I can control is myself. I can be discouraged because it seems like other families aren't placing God as a top priority in their lives. But you know what? I can control what my family does. I can control whether or not we have God as our top priority. It may discourage me because I can't control what other Christians do. And it seems that people aren't aren't reaching out and aren't studying the Bible with others as, as I think they should. Well, I can control what I do. And rather than looking at everything else and being so discouraged, I need to focus on myself. That's what Daniel did. Daniel focused on himself. And not only that, but he lived up to his name. You see, all of us who are Christians have put on the name of Christ. And I'm proud of my family's name. I'm proud of my country's name. I'm proud of this community's name. But the most important name we wear is the name of Christ. And every day we need to make decisions that will reflect His glory and that will reflect His image. And we need to take that same step Daniel took, letting God define us rather than our culture around us. You see, if we let our culture define us, we'll fall in the same category as a museum curator I heard about not very long ago. This was apparently a true story. In London, there was a museum that had ordered a special art exhibit from America to be shipped over. And one of the main items in that exhibit was a a statue here that was kind of a a bust. You had the shoulders and the head, and it was a stone statue, and it it was very impressive. And they were going to send it over from America, and it was sent over in two separate shipments. You had the statue itself. And you had a large wooden stand, since it was very heavy, for it to sit on. Now, the statue itself was held up in customs. But the stand was able to make it through, and so the stand arrived first. And so the museum workers gathered around, and they opened up this box that had a big wooden stand in it. And they knew they were expecting a shipment, and so they looked at the stand, and there was no other box with it. And so they put the stand out on display. They made a little space for it to sit, and they put a little nameplate under it and a little description of what it was. And people came into the museum every day and looked at a wooden stand. And this wooden stand was this wonderful piece of artwork, and they had all the lighting, and they had everything just right. And a few days later, as you can imagine, when the other half of the exhibit came in, they were a little bit embarrassed. You know, they didn't, they didn't really know what to do. And so the museum curator got a group of art experts to come together and review both of the pieces. At the end of this review, they decided that the wooden stand was the more impressive work of art. And so they threw away the bust and kept the wooden stand there on display. And so you have a wooden stand which was never intended to be a piece of artwork on display here in a museum. Now for us, that might seem a little bit foolish. It seems like we've forgotten what was valuable. I mean, what was valuable was the statue that they'd ordered from another country. But they've thrown away what was valuable, and they're holding on to something that seems far less valuable to us. Isn't that what our culture has done? We've thrown away what's valuable, and we're holding on to something that's not nearly as valuable. We've thrown away something that's good, and we're holding on to something that's not nearly as good. And if you and I decide to let culture define us, we're going to be doing the exact same thing. We're going to be throwing away something that's valuable. Throwing away something that's good, and holding on to something that's not. And it would be even more foolish 
than to throw away a statue and hold on to a stand because we'd be throwing away God's word that would endure forever and we'd be grasping for things in our culture that aren't going to last. You see, we've got to make a decision and we've got to honor God and not our culture. That's what Daniel did. But interestingly enough, Daniel also used some discretion. And I think this is a powerful example for us. Look at the way Daniel handled this decision he was going to make. In verse 8, after he had purposed for himself that he wasn't going to defile himself, he goes to the chief of the officers that was around him and requests that he might not defile himself. He asks for permission. He uses some wisdom, uses some discretion, and rather than than taking a stand and starting to go yell at people, he simply, kindly, politely asks for permission. And it turns out that this officer is afraid of what would happen. I mean, what if those other men begin to look very impressive because they're having the meat and the wine from the king's table, and you don't? And so what Daniel does then is he gets creative, and he goes to the chief officer that's over them, and he asks to have a a test run with just him and his three friends. And so he goes through in verse 12, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he uses kindness and politeness, and then he gets creative. And there are so many other times throughout these few short verses we see Daniel's wisdom. In fact, at the end of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar takes these young men who have been brought in as exiles. They're not native to this land. And he decides that in all matters of wisdom and understanding that they are ten times better than the magicians and astrologers he has. These are his top officials. And later on, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he wants his wise men to tell him what that dream is and interpret it. They can't do it, and so he's so furious, he's going to to give orders to have all of them put to death. And when the chief that is going to to carry out this command, Ariok, comes to Daniel, Daniel answers him with counsel and wisdom. The New American Standard uses the words discretion and discernment. See, Daniel still has that discretion, and he answers him wisely and uses that wisdom. You see, there are just a, a, a few short chapters that show us a lot about the wisdom of Daniel. I need to ask myself... Do my actions show wisdom? It's amazing to me that the entire book of Proverbs seems to be focused on getting wisdom. You can't read Proverbs for very long without being instructed to get wisdom. Proverbs 2 and verse 11 talks about discretion that will guard over you, understanding that will watch over you. Get wisdom. Even when Jesus would send out his apostles in Matthew 10, he would say they should be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. You see, as Christians, we need to use wisdom and discretion. And sometimes wisdom can make all the difference if we're sharing the gospel with someone. There are effective and ineffective ways to share the truth. And there are times we'll need to be like Daniel. We'll need to be polite and kind to someone if we want them to listen to us and to the gospel message that we offer? Have you ever had someone come up to you without knowing you very well and start telling you how you ought to live? Start telling you what decisions you ought to make? We sort of bristle when that happens, don't we? That person doesn't even know us. They don't know our situation. They don't know who we are, what we should do. We need to use that kindness, that politeness, that that wisdom and discretion that Daniel uses. There are times we might need to be creative. My grandfather was taught the Bible not by a minister in an office, but by a barber that he went and visited. And every time he sat down to get a haircut, he also got a Bible lesson. 
Well, this barber was being creative with the ways he was spreading God's word. He was guiding the conversation every time my grandfather came in to something godly, to something biblical. And so there are times we'll have to use wisdom and discretion. But not only does does Daniel make this decision or use wisdom, but he shows devotion. He continues to stay devoted. And as we think about the devotion he's shown, perhaps Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can teach us one of the most powerful lessons about devotion. You may remember that King Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to set up a gold image that everyone is going to bow down to. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continue to serve the one true God. They're not going to bow down to that image. And so they're brought before the king because of their disobedience. Now, I used to think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were sort of three people in a crowd that decided they wouldn't do this, and some of the king's assistants spotted them and brought them before the king. But did you know that's not the case? At the very end of chapter 2, we see that Daniel, because of Daniel's request, the king has set these three men over all the affairs of the province of Babylon. These, These aren't just a few guys in the kingdom. These are part of the king's administration. These are Nebuchadnezzar's men that aren't going to bow down and follow his word. And notice what they say to him. They say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And now that was the punishment if you didn't bow down to the golden image. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You know, it's difficult enough to decide to stand up and say that I believe that God will deliver me from this situation. I believe that God will deliver me from this punishment. That's difficult enough, but it's even more difficult to say, even if he doesn't deliver me, I'm still not going to bow down to your image. That's what they decided. Even if God doesn't deliver me, I'm still not going to bow down to your image. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, and he tells us that after saying no temptation has overtaken you, that isn't common to man. He tells us that God will now not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he'll provide us a way of escape. And sometimes we stop at that way of escape and we forget the remainder of that verse. We think that God will, when I'm tempted, God will provide me a way of escape. So if I just look hard enough, I can find a trap door that I can dive through, that I can sidestep all of this temptation. But at the end of that verse, we see that you might stand up under it, that you might bear it that you will be able to endure it. You know, sometimes God will be with us when we endure punishment, when we endure difficulties. We don't serve a God that will always get us out of difficult situations. Sometimes we're called to faithfulness and to stand up and to endure it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ready to endure for the Lord. And Daniel was ready to do the same thing. When he knew that there had been a, a... A law signed that there would be no one who could bow down and worship a God except the king. He went ahead and bowed and prayed anyway, just as he'd been accustomed to doing. He showed devotion. See, these men were willing to follow God no matter what. Are we willing to do the same? And you know what's interesting is the ultimate result of them following God no matter what was not that they were glorified. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered out of the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar didn't worship them. He worshiped God. When Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, King Darius didn't worship him. He sent out a decree to this land that had, ju- that had taken over the Israelites, that had taken their articles, put them in their pagan temples, that had tried to change their names. Darius sent out a decree that all of them should worship Daniel's God. Isn't that amazing? 
That's what happens when we decide to make a decision to use some discretion and to show some serious devotion to God. As we think about skeletons we might have in our closet, if you're like me, you've probably thought of some as we've discussed this. You've thought of some mistakes you've made that you wish you hadn't. Some things we wish we could keep hidden. And you know, we can follow Daniel's example, but not a one of us is going to be perfect. We're never going to be able to keep all the mistakes out of our lives. But the beautiful thing is this morning, there's a way in which every one of us can be clean. There's a way in which the skeletons of, of, of sins that are hanging over us can be cleansed. We can come into contact with that forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. All it takes is deciding to follow his will, turning our lives around, confessing that he is Lord and that he is going to be our master, being united with him in baptism and starting to walk that life where we've made a decision that's going to inform every action we take from here on out. We're going to use wisdom and discretion and we're going to show complete devotion. We can begin that same journey that Daniel displayed. We can live that kind of life where people can say, you know, I can't think of anything negative to say about them except for the way that they serve their God. And if that sounds like a worthy goal to you this morning, and if you want to take the initial steps on that journey, maybe you've never been baptized, now would be a wonderful opportunity for that to happen. Maybe you've lived as a Christian, but there are some skeletons piling up in your closet and you want to come forward and ask for prayers. And ask for help from this congregation. If there's any way that we can help you make any of these decisions, please come as we stand and sing together.